To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. What do Judaism and Messianics get wrong about Rosh Hashanah? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I am a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, the Jewish New Year. It's the second biggest holiday in Judaism, the beginning of the High Holy Day season, when the synagogues are packed full to hear the blowing of the shofar, and the people begin the 10-day period of repentance and judgment in the hopes of ensuring their inscription in the Book of Life for one more year. And yet, not a single thing that I just described is found in Scripture. Sadly, the beautiful and profound traditions of Rosh Hashanah are just the inventions of man. Today, I want to look at what Judaism gets wrong about Rosh Hashanah, as well as how those traditions have influenced the theology of Messianics and Hebrew Roots believers. Now, as I've said before, I do this not out of any desire to put down Judaism or Jewish tradition, but rather to elevate the scriptures. It brings me no joy to draw attention to this because it puts me at odds with my heritage, my community, and my people. But what does bring me joy is the pure word of God, which I believe with my whole heart is what truly defines how he wants us to obey, celebrate, and follow after him. Now, I don't have time today to dive into every important aspect of Rosh Hashanah, not the least of which being Teshuva, the Days of Awe, and the Book of Life, which I'll have to cover in another teaching. So today, I'll just be focusing more on the what of the day of Rosh Hashanah, which should go a long way to laying the foundation to later discuss the how. So with that said, let's jump right in and start with the most obvious thing that Judaism gets wrong about Rosh Hashanah, which is that this Jewish New Year is not the Jewish New Year. In fact, it's off by a full six months. Now, according to the Talmud, there are four New Years, one of which is the correct one. And the one that Rosh Hashanah recognizes is called the New Year for Years or Seasons, and it's considered the anniversary of creation. Rosh Hashanah marks the beginning of Judaism's annual civil calendar by which years are numbered, and when the Talmud says was the time for collecting tithes and set as the beginning of the Sabbath and Jubilee years. This is why it's called Rosh Hashanah, meaning head of the year. But there's something a little funny about this so-called head of the year, because unlike what you would expect with a new year, that it would fall on the first day of the first month of the year, Rosh Hashanah falls on the first day of the seventh month of the year. And while Judaism has its reasons for reckoning the counting of years according to the middle of them, the scriptures clearly and only tell us to count years according to the beginning. As it says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 2, This month shall be to you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So while Judaism starts its year with the observance of Rosh Hashanah in the seventh month in autumn, the scriptures say to start the year, obviously, in the first month, just two weeks before the big springtime event of Passover. Biblically speaking, there's no command to celebrate the new year other than to recognize the first day of the first month, just like you would every other month. 
So how then does Judaism scripturally defend the idea that the new year begins with the first day of the seventh month? Well, we do see Nehemiah in chapters 1 and 2 referring to the ninth month followed by the first month of the same year. Thanks, Hosh. So this may indicate a different starting point for the year, perhaps to be in line with Persia's calendar, which is where Nehemiah had been living at the time. This may also suggest that the change in Judaism's annual reckoning probably happened at some point while Israel was in foreign exile. But the fact remains that a later historical development doesn't nullify God's Torah, which should be the authority. So this would leave Judaism's best shot for scriptural support coming instead from Exodus 34, 22, which says, And you shall observe the feast of ingathering, that is Sukkot, at the turn of the year. So to understand how this verse might relate to Rosh Hashanah, let's talk about Sukkot for a minute. Now, the seven-day feast of Sukkot is very clearly commanded in Scripture to be celebrated in the seventh month, just like Rosh Hashanah, but beginning halfway through the month on the 15th day. And this verse in Exodus very clearly says that it marks the turn of the year, meaning that an annual cycle has now been completed and begins again. So why doesn't this support the idea that Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year? Well, it's because Scripture says that Sukkot marks the turn of the year, not Rosh Hashanah two weeks earlier. Judaism even inadvertently reinforces this with the added Jewish holiday of Simchat Torah after the conclusion of Sukkot, when the Torah scroll is rewound for another year. Turn of the year also can't be stretched backward to include Rosh Hashanah. The language simply doesn't support that. So if anything, based on Exodus 34, the new year would begin somewhere in the middle of the seventh month, not the beginning. But that would make even less sense. So what does it mean then that Sukkot is at the turn of the year? Well, it's likely referring to Israel's annual cycle of appointed feasts, which are based around its agricultural schedule. Sukkot marks the end of the year's series of appointed times, as well as its harvest seasons. And after the week-long celebration, it will be time to shift gears away from harvesting and to focus on the preparation of the winter months so that the land will be ready for harvest time when it and the spring feasts like Passover roll around again. This kind of turn of the year would be akin to a school year or a fiscal year, which can run independently of the annual calendar. The turn of the year doesn't alter or adjust when a new calendar year begins. It only indicates that the cycle of appointed times and harvest times have concluded, which is ironic in and of itself for the annual holy days to be officially ending for the year just as Judaism's new year has begun. All that to say, there's no scriptural evidence whatsoever that there are two new years or four new years, much less that the God-instituted calendar begins with the month in the middle. There's a world of difference between a new year and an anniversary. So to consider Rosh Hashanah the Jewish new year is to wreck the entire rhythm of how God wants Israel to reckon time. So now that we've seen that the Jewish New Year isn't the New Year, the next thing that Judaism gets wrong about Rosh Hashanah is that Rosh Hashanah isn't called Rosh Hashanah. The Bible never refers to the first day of the seventh month with the name Rosh Hashanah. Now the phrase Rosh Hashanah 
does occur once in scripture in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse one, which says in part, in the five and 20th year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, Rosh Hashanah, in the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after that, the city was smitten. So Ezekiel is about to talk about a vision he was given, and he's telling us the date when it happened. But from the context, there's no reason to assume anything but the years he's referring to being biblical years as instituted in Exodus 12, with the possibility of it referring to Babylonian years, which also begin in the spring like biblical years. So the existence of the phrase Rosh Hashanah here, while it does appear to indicate that it's referring to a new year, doesn't give credence to its use for this day in Judaism. So if it isn't called Rosh Hashanah, what do the scriptures call it? Well, there are actually two different ways it's referred to. The first is in Leviticus 23, 24, where it's described as Zichron Teruah, and the second is in Numbers 29, 1, where it's called Yom Teruah. The word Zichron means memorial or remembrance, Yom means day, and Teruah is associated in Judaism with the blowing of trumpets or shofars, typically a ram's horn. So Zichron Teruah is translated variously as a memorial proclaimed with the blast of horns or a reminder by a blowing of trumpets, and Yom Teruah is variously translated as a day of blowing the horn or a day for blowing trumpets. So according to the Torah, this day is referred to as both Zichron Teruah or Yom Teruah, which have nothing to do with the time of year, but everything to do with the commanded activities for the day, which are to remember and to make teruah. So the first day of the seventh month, then, isn't called Rosh Hashanah. And by choosing to refer to it primarily this way, Judaism is giving precedence to its own new narrative, orientation, and theology, thereby adding to and changing its main purpose and focus according to Scripture. So in addition to the Jewish New Year not actually being the New Year, we now see that Rosh Hashanah isn't called Rosh Hashanah. And while it's also sometimes referred to as the Feast of Trumpets, the next thing that people get wrong about Rosh Hashanah is that the Feast of Trumpets isn't a feast. In Scripture, the word feast or festival is a very specific word. It's the Hebrew word Chag. And while it's been said that there are seven feasts on Israel's calendar, according to the Scriptures, there are actually only three, technically four. Though it's common to refer to any appointed time as a feast or festival, it's simply wrong. You will only find the word feast in Hebrew in the Bible associated with the three pilgrim feasts, the appointed feasts that require attendance in Jerusalem. And those are the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or ingathering, that is Sukkot. Passover, which launches the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, is also called a feast. And that's it. Those are the only ones. Not first fruits not Yom Kippur, and not Rosh Hashanah. So not every appointed time on the annual calendar is biblically considered a feast or festival. Only the three pilgrim feasts plus Passover. So since Rosh Hashanah, or rather Yom Teruah, isn't a feast, that should immediately change our perception of its importance and return some well-deserved attention to those feasts which are largely overlooked, such as the Feast of Weeks. So while Yom Teruah is still an essential and pivotal appointed day, it's a far cry from the high holy day status assigned to it in Judaism and adopted in Messianic circles. Our zeal and focus on Yom Teruah, then, 
ought to be adjusted accordingly. So rather than Rosh Hashanah being the second most important appointment on the biblical calendar, it doesn't even break the top five. And when we understand that, it should help us see more clearly God's intended terrain and sequence for his holy days. By assigning the status of High Holy Day to Rosh Hashanah, Judaism knocks the whole calendar off balance and consequently causes the downgrading of significance of the Torah's actual feast days. So Rosh Hashanah isn't Rosh Hashanah. The New Year isn't the New Year, and the Feast of Trumpets isn't a feast. Well, guess what? The next thing that Judaism gets wrong about Rosh Hashanah is that the Feast of Trumpets has nothing to do with trumpets. It's not about trumpets. It's not about horns. It's not even about shofars. Now, the blowing of the shofar is a major material feature of Rosh Hashanah. Judaism prescribes an exact series of various blasts on the shofar, ranging from short staccato notes to long, continuous sounds. The congregation will then cycle between sitting and standing during the various portions of the service while listening to the sound of the shofar. Judaism connects the use of the shofar to several themes, including the binding of Isaac and the confusing of Satan. So how can I say that Yom Teruah isn't about trumpets or shofars when it clearly says in Leviticus 23:24, according to the NAS, speak to the sons of Israel saying, in the seventh month on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets. So notice that the NAS did us a big favor here and put the phrase of trumpets in italics. Now, why did they do that? Because in the underlying Hebrew, it says nothing here about trumpets. And the italics are indicating that. Nowhere in this verse or in the parallel verse in Numbers 29.1 do we find the Hebrew word shofar. It's simply not there. So when you see the word trumpets or horns in these verses, that means it's been added to your Bible. And your translator did that because of Jewish tradition. Ironically, the 1985 Jewish Publication Society Tanakh has this part of the verse right. On the first day of the month, you shall observe complete rest, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. So commemorated with loud blasts without adding the word trumpet or shofar is translating the only Hebrew that's there, the phrase zichron teruah. So what we need to realize is that the word teruah doesn't automatically infer any particular kind of sound-making instrument, much less a shofar. On the contrary, teruah is about the sound itself. For example, in Numbers chapter 10, verses 5-6, through six, teruah is the specific sound that the silver trumpets make to signal all the tribes of Israel that it's time to break camp and move. By the way, at the appointed times and on New Moon, of which Yom Teruah is one, the silver trumpets are to make a different sound, not Teruah, according to verse 10. Also in Numbers 31.6, Jeremiah 49.2, and elsewhere, Teruah is the sound of the alarm, the calling of the people to battle. And in Psalm 150, verse 5, it's the loud, crashing sound of the cymbals that's to be made in praise to God. But most often, Teruah is the sound made not by any kind of instrument, man-made or otherwise, but from our very own lungs and lips and mouths. In Scripture, the sound of Teruah is most often the sound of shouting. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 5, 
It's the shout of Israel at the sight of the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great teruah, so that the earth rang. In Ezra 3.13, it's the shout of joy at the relaying of the foundation of the temple. The people could not discern the noise of the teruah of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud teruah, and the noise was heard afar off. And in Joshua 6.20, it's the people's shout that brought down the walls of Jericho. The people shouted with a great teruah, and the wall fell down flat. So to limit the sound of teruah to the shofar is to ignore the abundance of biblical evidence to the contrary, especially the evidence which shows that the most common biblical instrument used to make teruah is the human voice. In fact, where we do see the words teruah and shofar together in the text, teruah is most often not the sound of the shofar, but of the people. Again, in Joshua 6.20, And it came to pass, when the people heard the voice of the shofar, that the people shouted with a great teruah. 2 Samuel 6.15, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with teruah and with the voice of the shofar. And 2 Chronicles 15.14, And they swore unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting with teruah and with trumpets and with shofarot. So the sound of teruah, according to scripture, is most often the sound of shouting, and only occasionally is it anything else. So does that mean that there's no connection between the shofar and teruah whatsoever? Not at all. For one thing, we actually see the phrase shofar teruah in Leviticus 25, 9-10, which says, Then shall you make proclamation with the blast of the horn, shofar teruah, on the tenth day of the seventh month, in the day of atonement, shall you make proclamation with the shofar throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year, it shall be a jubilee unto you. This is actually the only place in the entire book of Leviticus that mentions the shofar. It's not even mentioned once in the book of Numbers. So it's conceivable that these verses were influential upon the understanding of Yom Teruah and Zikron Teruah less than two chapters earlier. But that said, especially given the preponderance of other biblical data, this still doesn't make a direct connection to Yom Teruah. On the contrary, in this context, to cause the shofar to make Teruah every year on Yom Teruah could be perceived as an intrusion upon the importance of the shofar making Teruah to announce the 50th Jubilee year. The frequent special use of the shofar could dilute the pronouncement of the Jubilee. Now, there is one place in Scripture that does appear to make a direct connection between the shofar and Yom Teruah, and that's Psalm 81.3, which says, Blow the shofar at the new moon, at the full moon, for our feast day. So there are only two times each year in which the full moon falls on a feast day, once during the first month during the Passover season, and once during the seventh, at the beginning of the feast of Sukkot. So when we match the pattern of the new moon with the full moon feast day, this blowing of the shofar at the new moon could very well be talking about Yom Teruah, even though the word blow here is not the word teruah. Of course, the verse could just as easily be talking about the biblical new year two weeks before Passover. 
or both. But assuming that this is including, if not directly referring to Yom Teruah, it still in no way limits its making of Teruah to the shofar. It also doesn't make the shofar a special, unique instrument for Yom Teruah, because we're also told here to sound it at Sukkot, or possibly even the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All this verse does is exhort us to praise God with the shofar as another welcome noisemaker, and thereby further affirm it as a capable instrument for making the prescribed sound at the set time. In fact, that's exactly the way it reads as one instrument among many when we look at it in context with the previous two verses. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. That shout is from the root word for teruah. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the shofar at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. Now that sounds like a great Rosh Hashanah service. So while the sound of teruah is a loud, alarming blast of noise, it's hardly limited to the sound of the shofar. And in scripture, it's a sound most often generated by the human voice. The biblical commands for Yom Teruah never say anything about the shofar or trumpets, and any mention of it in those verses was added to your Bible by the translators. And because Judaism attempted to fill the apparent gap in clarity regarding the Torah commands for Yom Teruah, it ended up creating biblically unsupported Rosh Hashanah laws and traditions that focus solely on the shofar, which became a source of undue influence upon the accurate translation and application of God's word. So, Rosh Hashanah isn't Rosh Hashanah, the new year isn't the new year, the Feast of Trumpets isn't a feast, and it's not all about trumpets or shofars. And because this is the case, here's a bonus for you. Since there's no explicit connection between Yom Teruah and the shofar, what Messianics get wrong about Rosh Hashanah is that it isn't prophetically fulfilled in Yeshua. It has nothing to do with the rapture. Now, we do see very clear, very obvious prophetic fulfillment of Passover and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, in Yeshua. I won't go into all the other Moedim right now. But the widespread narrative that Yeshua fulfills all the feasts and all the appointed times in some kind of continuous, neatly packaged prophetic foreshadowing hinges on Yeshua's fulfillment of Yom Teruah. And the problem is that such a fulfillment relies completely on the idea that Yom Teruah is connected specifically to the blowing of the shofar. Because when we base our theology on this totally unsubstantiated assertion from Judaism, then this inspires the leap to 1 Corinthians 15.52, which says that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last shofar, it will sound, and the dead will be raised, undecaying, and we will be changed. And also 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the master himself with a shout, with the voice of a chief messenger, and with the shofar of God will come down from heaven and the dead in Messiah will rise first. So because these verses mention the shofar or trumpet, and it's believed that Yom Teruah is about making the sound of the shofar, and one of the major themes of Judaism's Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment, then the concept of Yeshua's return and the day of God and the theology of the rapture is read back into Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29, forcing an inference of messianic fulfillment. 
But even if the mere existence of the same word in two completely separate places in the Bible automatically meant that the two passages were connected, which it doesn't, if Yom Teruah isn't a day specifically for the blowing of shofars, which it's not, then there's nothing at all in the text of 1 Corinthians or 1 Thessalonians to connect back to. Even if you tried to link the shout of the Messiah in 1 Thessalonians to Teruah, it's still reading a preconceived idea into the text, not to mention there's no real linguistic support for it in the Greek or Hebrew. So without any explicit Yom Teruah command for shofars, or judgment for that matter, any scriptural connection between the return of Yeshua and Yom Teruah evaporates. The entire so-called Messianic fulfillment is a house of cards. Now understand that this in no way affects the truth and inevitability of Yeshua's glorious return at the sound of the last shofar. Nor does this take away from the intrinsic spiritual themes of the Moedim, Yeshua's prophetic fulfillment of the appointed times that he does fulfill, nor does it in any way diminish the importance of Yom Teruah itself. What this does do is clear the way for a biblically correct understanding of what the scriptures actually say about Yom Teruah and uphold God's word over man's ideas. What doesn't matter is whether or not Yeshua's return will be in its so-called fulfillment of a biblical feast, since nothing in scripture insists that this must be the case. What does matter is not adopting a dubious theology from a missing connection in scripture based on the traditions and misunderstandings of man. It's more than enough for Yom Teruah to point us to the actual highest holy day, Yom Kippur, it doesn't need to point us directly to Yeshua. So the last shofar at Yeshua's return isn't a prophetic fulfillment of Yom Teruah, because there's no shofar in the Yom Teruah commands for it to fulfill. Messianics have put too much trust in Judaism and placed too much importance on its traditions, leading to false requirements and expectations being placed upon the scriptures. The result has been to cast the significance of Yom Teruah off into the future rather than keeping it squarely in the present where it scripturally belongs. So if Rosh Hashanah isn't Rosh Hashanah and the New Year isn't the New Year and the Feast of Trumpets isn't a feast and it's not all about trumpets, nor does it prophetically foreshadow the return of Yeshua, then what is Yom Teruah really all about? Well, for all the traditions and Talmudic discussion and its high position in the collective Jewish consciousness, the reality is that the Torah concerning Yom Teruah is extremely simple. Aside from the few instructions about sacrifices and the normal expectations for a moed like this, such as resting and not working, the essential command for the first day of the seventh month is captured in those two little words in Leviticus 23-24, Zichron Teruah, which can be translated as a memorial of loud blasts of sound. With regard to the memorial or remembrance, Scripture never explains what this means or how it relates to Teruah. But especially given its unique place on the annual calendar, I believe we can make a reasonable application. And as for the Teruah, the loud blasts of sound, we now know that we have a virtual symphony at our disposal, which can include, but is not limited to, the blowing of the shofar, and in fact features the sound of shouting made by the human voice. 
Teruah is extremely loud, it's sustained, and it can be heard from far away. It calls people to attention, it sounds the alarm, and it points to and praises our great God. While the jarring sound and effort might very well arouse in us a fresh awareness of our fleshly behavior and sin, Yom Teruah isn't meant to be observed in mournful silence as we bear witness to the voice of the shofar in its monotone, stuttering solo. With a cacophony of instruments and a roaring chorus of voices, we can audibly confess with our mouths not only our wrongs, but our gratefulness and thankfulness and overabundant praise for the salvation we have in the Messiah, Yeshua. The 150th Psalm says, Hallelujah! Praise God in His holy place! Praise Him in the expanse of His strength! Praise Him in His mighty acts! Praise Him according to the abundance of His greatness! Praise Him with the sounding of the shofar! Praise Him with lute and lyre! Praise Him with tambourine and dance! Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe! Praise Him with resounding cymbals! Praise Him with the teruah of cymbals! Let all things that breathe praise Yah! Hallelujah! If anything deserves to be remembered with teruah, it's the deliverance and abundant greatness of Adonai, our God. What Judaism gets wrong about Yom Teruah is what most of us get wrong about God's Word. We give it our own meaning and make it far more elaborate than it needs to be. The Rosh Hashanah of Judaism has heaped up such a mountain of conjecture and tradition that it shrouds the true and simple biblical command and purpose for the day. Of course, you can repent. Of course, you can blow the shofar. Of course, you should set aside the day as holy. But when we keep this specially appointed time only passively and inwardly and out of sync with God's perfect schedule, we fail to become fully awakened to what he's calling us to know and how he's charging us to change. The spirit of the Torah for Yom Teruah isn't complex and somber, but clamorous and simple. We need to change our perspective, priorities, and way of observing this special day and return to the sparsity and simplicity of the scriptural commands with which it was given. Yom Teruah doesn't mark a new year, nor is it a feast that focuses on the shofar. What it is, is a day appointed by God for fixing our attention, calling us back to Him, and reminding us that through all the noise of our lives, our Master's voice is the only one that should always remain the loudest. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment, or shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.